Till that time, Afghan women were represented by international or expatriate women. So we were the first one who was saying like, okay, here we are and we speak for ourselves. Here are our issues and how we see our solution. And this is how we want to get together. And we started a new identity for ourselves. We happened to face a lot of resistance for all those people who were speaking on our behalf till that time. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Today, I'm joined by Palvosha Hassan. Palvosha is a dedicated women's rights and peace activist who has pioneered many critical works for the promotion of women's rights and civil society in Afghanistan. She has over 20 years of experience working in development and on women's rights and empowerment issues, both in Pakistan and Afghanistan. She's the founding member of several civil society groups, including the Afghan Women's Education Center, Afghan Women's Network, and Rosana. She's further a two-time elected chairperson of the Afghan NGO coordinating body, Akbar, and a former advisor to Afghanistan's High Peace Council. She also served as the first Afghan woman to head an international NGO in Afghanistan as country director for rights and democracy. She was also recognized for accomplishments as one of the 1,000 peace women nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2005. Palvasha John, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you, Safa John, and it's my pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So you've been a long time and dedicated women's rights activist, peace building activist. Could you share with us a bit about the experiences that motivated you to become a women's rights activist and be involved in these issues? I think that my first motivation started when I was still very young and as a young refugee in Pakistan. And my elder sister has started some work for Afghan refugee women in Pakistan. I always felt like, despite of my good relation with my Pakistani friend, the school that I was going, I felt sometimes like there are things we, we don't share in common because Pakistan society was a stable society. And we were coming from a background where every day we were hearing something destructive in my country. We were losing people. So that made uh, like a difference between me and uh, my class fellows at school. So I always felt like I want to connect back with my community. And I was lucky that uh, my sister had a place where she was working with other women and it was called uh, the Afghan Women Educational Center, which now I'm working as director there. This organization was like sort of community, social and educational place where Afghan refugee women and children were getting together and mainly women. Uh, and they were discussing their issues and they were helping each other and stuff like that. So I felt like this is one way that I can volunteer my myself uh, by helping with my sister and other women. And um, that's how I felt like I'm doing something back for the community where I belong. And I also had that sense of belonging there as well. 
Uh, so I think that brought me in, but the real activism I eventually developed when I was selected or invited to one of the meetings, Beijing Fourth Women Conference, where I was invited to Young Leaders Program. And because I was very young at that time, I was so open to new learning and stuff. So, so much was happening in Beijing, Huairo, almost 30,000 women from around the world were there. And I was with this group of young women and we went much before the actual forum has started. So in this forum, we were like about um, 16 other countries or more than that. Now I don't remember the exact number of countries where young women from different countries came. I was almost the second youngest person in this group. And these women came from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia. And and that time I went as African refugee from Pakistan. So I learned a lot about the issues that women and uh, especially young women are facing in different countries. Some of the terms were so new to me. A lot of it was so new to me. For instance, genital mutilation and so many other issues which I never faced in my culture or in my side of the world, which has been one of the biggest issues for women and elsewhere in the world. So I learned by like how different culture, different places has different challenges for women and young women, but also collectively they are fighting it. And uh, in, this was a process of uh, like mentoring, exchange, sharing and building the capacity of these young women. And I think I learned a lot by uh, interacting with some of the very seasoned women activists and feminists from different countries, from Indonesia, Malaysia, and from Palestine and so many other places. So we work with these uh, women, but also with younger women, we had this interaction. And uh, at some point, we were given time to plan something as a follow-up when we go back to our countries. In that time, my home was in Pakistan as a refugee there. And uh, everybody was thinking like how to take this learning back to their home. And for me, it was very interesting to go back and start something. Because what I saw in, in my side of the world uh, among refugees, that we had several initiatives by refugee women for refugee. But most of this was like more like... um individual islands of initiatives by different women. And there was no collective thing like based on a vision to support uh, a bigger cause that could bring women from different walks together. And I thought like, I will start something like a network, which could bring women in Peshawar, but also in Islamabad. And that was one of the things which I planned in Beijing. And when I came back to Pakistan uh, within a week, invited some of the school teachers from different schools for Afghan refugees, women, and also eventually some of Afghan women who were working with UN invited them. And we started discussing like what we can do. And I met this Australian woman who was working with Save the Children at that time. And she gave us more idea. She had more idea of like what advocacy can happen. I also took some trainings in Beijing. There were several workshops and all that. So we started uh, by speaking to more women and we designed two sets of activity. One was the advocacy training, which I prepared, and she was the one who was speaking about how to create network. And from that day, we started Afghan Women Network. 
And we start traveling to Peshawar. We also invited other women. So eventually, uh, some of our members start traveling inside Afghanistan, especially those who were working with UN. And they went inside Afghanistan, invited other women. In this way, we start connecting with each other and we spoke uh, about issues which was concerning all of us. And that was peace, women's education and women's human rights. Taliban has took uh, several places in Afghanistan. And that was 1996. So that gave us more reason to work more stronger because Taliban started closing women activity, closing girls' schools. And from that time, then we started working on campaigns, speaking about gender apartheid in Afghanistan. And, you know, like some of the international women feminists took interest in our work and they come together, we discussed issues. So we also connected with those uh, other women who were outside our community, but also very closely working with us and who also were interested to listen to something new. Because until that time, Afghan women were represented by international or expatriate women. So we were the first one who was saying like, okay, here we are and we speak for ourselves. Here are our issues and how we see our solution. And this is how we want to get together. And we started to a new identity for ourselves. We happened to face a lot of resistance uh, for all those people who were speaking on our behalf till that time. And so we were the first speakers and voices for our community and especially for women. Eventually, we started big campaign and uh, we continued to work for girls' education, raising our voices against Taliban and their policies for closing girls' schools. We even lobbied for non-recognition of Talibanese government unless they accepted equality for women. We started several initiatives, but then 9-11 happened. This was the time we uh, more focused on the peace activities. While we all this time were against Taliban policies, but we never wanted Afghanistan bombardment and killing of people. We were thinking that there should be a peaceful solution or any international intervention should happen through talk. So we were the first group who started speaking about peaceful solution of Afghanistan. But eventually Taliban were driven out of Afghanistan, new establishment happened. Some political changes happened. So me and a lot of other women from our group participated in different activities in the process of reconstruction, but also the relief process and new lockmaking. So my focus was how uh, the new constitution of Afghanistan can ensure better spaces and uh, better work spaces and living spaces for women we thought it can only happen if we make the constitution rightly placed. So we advocated for women's rights, for equality clause. We advocated for more women in politics. So for women quota, which was sort of like came also because this all coincided with UN Resolution 1325. So there was also an international interest for more participation of women, but it was also on the ground, push and support from all of us uh, who were not ready to accept just symbolic changes for women. So we pushed for a quota which become a substantive representation of women in the parliament of Afghanistan, 
So we got two seats from each province for women, and that came to a lot of fighting inside the constitutional law agenda, where I and a number of other women, we worked together, collected signatures, uh, tried to build alliances there, and eventually we got that. And I remember that uh, Lakhdar Ibrahimi and a number of other people were telling us, oh, you, you want more seats than United States of America have it? We said, we, we don't compare ourselves with others. What we faced in Afghanistan, probably nobody else faced it in U.S. And we, we think women of Afghanistan deserve more than that. We have more eligible women. We need more empowerment for women. And that can only happen if we have a stronger representation of women. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for that overview of all the different important steps in the journey. As you mentioned, you were living as a refugee in Pakistan for some years, and you were already involved in different initiatives there, uh, and of course in establishing or co-founding with other women, the Afghan Women's Network, which is kind of an umbrella network, and within it there are all these different initiatives and different groups that promote the involvement or the political participation of women on different issues. So at that time, when you were still living in Pakistan and working there and being an activist there, what were your experiences of being engaged in these issues from the neighboring country, from Pakistan? And what was it like to be part of the Afghan refugee group there or the diaspora group there and be advocating and contributing to social issues from outside of Afghanistan at that time? I think it was a little bit tough time. In Pakistan, there were two reasons. And the Pakistani women engagement with Afghan refugee was not very smooth. Actually, there was very limited or no connection between women groups in that time. While Pakistani civil society has a stronger and older history. But the reason was that because the Afghan refugee came through a, a military regime in Pakistan, uh, which was General Ziaul Haq. Martial law was enforced in Pakistan. Very military regime was there. So the Pakistani women didn't connect it with us because they see us as an extension of a militant government. Also other issues because of the martial law regime in that time, the Pakistani society had very limited liberation for women groups and civil society group because blasphemy act, for instance, by the government there. It was very easy for small things, for anything they would say against government or one was branded as going against their government or being not patriotic enough or not Muslim enough. So those things stopped a very strong relation that should have existed otherwise between the Pakistani and Afghan women uh, didn't happen. For international, we had a lot of expatriate women who were speakers for Afghan women until that time. Uh, so they were speaking about our needs and this and that. Uh, so for them also, this new emerging group who were seeing themselves as independent and who knew how to speak about their issue themselves, represented their own problems, this was not well received. So from time to time, we faced obstacles and a lot of time, uh, I remember being very uh, young and, of course, some of us like me in that time didn't have that much experience. And here I was facing, for instance, an international who has years of experience, exposure, you know, working with UN and international organization and all that. 
So she spoke about how Afghanistan is traditional and how women's spaces are very segregated than men. And I was speaking here and I was saying, don't give us always trainings, for instance. We, we cannot fill all Afghanistan with tailors. We have to give women different capacity. They have to be manager. And she spoke saying that I was actually very alienated. I am very different and I'm speaking for very limited young women. Uh, so th- this was sort of issues that we had with some of these women um, who were till that time uh, supposed to be speaking about our issues as our speakers. Um, so that was the, but we in the meanwhile had a lot of other women who were saying, wait a minute, these women are trying to mobilize themselves. They, they are speaking for themselves and their issues. Let's support them. And so we had like those women who came with us and supported us, helped us with our, for instance, I remember when we were making our speeches in uh, Farsi or something, they will help us translating it for the international audience in English, for instance. The small steps made a big change for us. In meanwhile, internationally, I remember we start a big campaign, a, a big fight, because Taliban closed schools for girls. The UN sent a delegation to Afghanistan. And this delegation came and this is, it's okay what Talibans are speaking. This is like the majority of Afghanistan is like that. So we have to be cautious. We have to be engaging with Taliban. So basically they were saying uh, women work is closed or girls are not allowed to school. This is not a big deal. We have to eventually work with Taliban and they probably will give little spaces to women or girls. But at this point, we don't have to make a big issue of it. So we start writing emails and say it like, a UN delegation cannot speak like this because human rights are universal and they cannot say this on behalf of Afghan women. So I think we started like big fights, but this was not easy if we didn't have support from some of these international human rights activists and others who also took interest with us because not everybody were like this. So they said, okay, if you want to speak against this, what do you want to say? And we said, okay, this is my word and all that. So we put in letter and they helped us with giving us addresses and this is how we connected. And just to remind you that emails were very new invention in that time. So now we have podcasts and so many things that didn't exist in that time. So with the bliss of emails, we were able to reach the UN headquarters, but also many of the big uh, human rights organizations internationally. I think the woman's name was Angela King, who was the special rapporteur of UN at that time. We exposed what was against women and gender in Afghanistan and how international missions were supporting some of these things. But working also in Pakistan, Taliban was a political group who came into existence because of the Pakistani government support. So speaking against Taliban also meant you're irritating that government here. Yeah. So it was not easy. Like for some of us, we were also afraid for our families because some of activists who start speaking loud against Taliban, they were thrown out of Pakistan. Or when some people spoke about the Pakistan involvement for promoting this kind of groups, they were deported from Pakistan. And of course, in that time, we had no way. We were not able to go to any other countries, but living there. 
So there was a lot of pressure. I remember in some of the places when we were speaking against Taliban, we were not even bold enough to speak it loud because we were afraid for our families. And Taliban, of course, were brutal. If you go to that country back with your family, it could have been issue of life and death. Actually, the issue of Afghan women totally died. The Cold War finished, you know, United States and Western world kind of like closed their uh, businesses in, for refugees in Pakistan. So it was so difficult to work. I remember at some point with Taliban taking over Kabul, a lot of the urban, lower, middle class Afghan who were urban Kabulis, they left Afghanistan without money or anything because already, you know, a teacher, what she was surviving on a small salary, which didn't left her with saving to come to Pakistan and start a new life. So we had a number of women and children on the streets of Peshawar. And that is when I started a project called Center for Women and Street Children to help these women who left Afghanistan after coming of the Taliban. The only survival they had was their salaries, and now they had no work, and they came to Peshawar, and there was no support for refugees. And because, as I said, the Cold War finished, and nobody was interested on women issue or refugee issues, so there was no support, basically, for these people. And for the center, we started with very small things. For instance, for my project, there was no money. We had to collect things from my family and friends to start some of the activities, to start uh, a small production for uh, women, which created the clothes for some of the diaspora who would order as sew for them or stitch for them traditional Afghan dresses. And that created uh, some income. Or we started for boys, some small uh, carpentry and other work, and then work with the community to help them with their education, you know. So, you know, there was no money <laughs> and uh, it was too hard. The needs were so huge and you see all these needs around you and you wanted to help people. On another side, Taliban started stopping a lot of things. For instance, Nowruz was stopped to be celebrated in Kabul. Kite running was stopped in Afghanistan. And, you know, like each person, and I'm here speaking about myself as well, like I had to fight several fights. On one hand, I was working with the Street Children's Center that we create little possibility for women and street children to help them uh, with better coping with the situation in Pakistan. On another side, here somebody was trying to impose new identity for Afghanistan in a lot of things which was so familiar for us, including Nauru's, kite running, so many other things as a children we were brought up with. And that was no more a secret thing in Afghanistan. And that was the time that I worked with a number of other, mainly men in that time, worked on a center called Efon Cultural Center. So here we wanted to protect the identity of what is our culture and uh, so promote it like uh, publishing books, uh, organizing uh, a, a place for the artists and other people to bring, you know, like exhibit, for instance, the art pieces and stuff like that. And that was one way of responding to what Taliban was doing inside Afghanistan. Here we were saying, okay, this is our small world and here's how we are promoting or protecting our identity. 
So this is how, you know, like several different fronts I got involved in as a refugee in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. So many powerful examples of your really pioneering work, your contributions to so many of the issues. And as you say, of course, at great personal risk. And so thinking about the activities you are involved with or leading from Pakistan, as you mentioned earlier, it was hard to find financial support or funding for some of the activities and the programs you were establishing. And this was back in the 90s. But just generally, even up to today, uh, what are your thoughts about the support from or the role of Afghan diaspora groups as one of the stakeholders or one of the actors involved in these issues? I remember at that time I have been very angry with the diasporas. Um, but I think now I understand them more because that was the time like a lot of Afghan migrated and they didn't spend too much time that they could have been fully established. Later on, I had a trip to, when I went to U.S. and I saw many of the very educated people from my country were now taxi driver or their wives were cleaner somewhere. So, you know, my expectation came down because before that I was thinking like sort of betraying their own country, their own people, why they left, first of all. Second, why they are not supporting, taking responsibility for others. But I don't think they were in that position. Many of them were not in a very good position as I'm now traveling and I'm seeing the diaspora, especially the younger generation, the people who uh, left as a kids and they were brought up in US and Europe. They were able to complete their education and now they have better work. So now they can afford to give money or support to Afghans inside Afghanistan. In that time, I know that uh, not only they were not able to help, but sometimes they were also resentful. I remember I had one interview with one of the Afghan diaspora who was working with Wise of America. And so this woman was talking to me about the street children's center that I've started. So she wanted to speak to somebody and she learned about the center I was running and she spoke to me and what I was doing. But the way she was asking me question, I felt like she's sort of like telling me that I haven't done a great job. Like she was telling me, yes, 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 you did good job. But in fact, you also created a work for yourself. And I, I got angry <laughs> in my interview. And I said, why don't you come and create some of this work for yourself as well? And I felt so bad. But now I understand, like probably some of them, when they heard that some younger generation than them who didn't went for a green greener pasture abroad, and uh, instead they choose to work for others. So, so that makes them a sort of like a false sort of jealousy or competition has started. So some of them were even discouraging us. Um, but I think both diaspora and Afghan inside Afghanistan now, we learn now to work more uh, cooperatively and support each other. Or in another instance, there was one of these Afghan uh, diaspora who wrote her book. She came from US and she needed some place to launch her book and things like that. So the Irfan Cultural Center, which I created with a number of other Afghan refugees in Pakistan. So I offered her like she can launch her book here and actually helped with a lot of, you know, ask uh, some of the great writers who came from Afghanistan, like Bokhtari and other who were living there to tell them like to review her book and thing like that. 
So we organized a good event for her. And then she was telling me, okay, I want to do something for refugees. But in meanwhile, she was not even trusting me. I remember she took our report and she was trying to do something directly. So I think that was very beginning time. The capacity of the diaspora was not that much that they could give something. They were actually looking for their own recognition or for doing something which um, they can take the credit from. And these are the things which I'm reflecting now back on those memories. Instead of being angry now, I do understand them more. Mm -hmm, Yes. And so earlier you mentioned the context of the end of the Cold War, the Taliban coming into power, the changes they brought in society in terms of the role of women. And then later on, after many years of struggle and conflict, when the Taliban regime was defeated, you yourself made the decision to return to Afghanistan. Could you share a bit about that decision and what your hopes were at that time, those early days when you decided to go back? That was important time. First of all, even before the Taliban was completely defeated, a group of us worked for peace. And so we were the first group of people. I recently had one interaction with one of them, actually Khalil Zod's wife, Bernard, she wrote an article and said why Afghan women are writing in Western uh, media. Why don't they go and back and fight for peace in their own country and for their rights? So I wrote a letter back in her response. And I said, we knew that the Afghanistan issue should have been resolved through peace and not by military intervention that your country did. So yes, we we started several conferences and campaign and said uh, bombardment of Afghanistan should be stopped, Taliban should be brought to the table of peace and things like that. But nobody listened to us. Of course, we were not that big and influential and the United States was angry and they wanted to bomb Afghanistan, bring a political change. And Afghanistan lose a big opportunity if we had included Taliban by that time, they wouldn't have been as strong or as powerfully coming back with loads of conservatism that they may bring back to the power. Anyhow, um, that happened, but we used the opportunity meanwhile. I was excited coming back to Afghanistan, but coming back to Afghanistan was not easy because so much happened. Afghanistan was almost like a graveyard. Already during Taliban time, no, for six years, drought and no development. And uh, of course, uh, after the U.S. bombardment, even things were worsened. So here we were coming back and um, almost nothing in my country. Life was so difficult, but I felt excited still to go back, to feel like that belonging, because in Pakistan, when we were doing things, there was uh, always like, okay, somebody will arise or create problem or risk for my family. And here I I was thinking, now it is my own country. I can improve things. And so I got uh, two job offers. One was through UNICEF and one was with this international organization, Canadian organization. And so I asked some people, my friends, for advice, and they advised me to work with Canadian organization, which was giving funding for other women, small groups, initiatives. And I got excited about that. Like now I was feeling, okay, I can help other women to set up their own organization or to promote their own uh, groups. And I will be traveling in provinces 
that was a big empowerment for myself. My family was still in Pakistan, but one of my sisters, she came to Afghanistan and I thought, okay, I can go and with her and live there. And of course, when we came first to Afghanistan, there was no electricity. There, the banks were still not functional. You know, life was so different. And in Pakistan, at least, there were those facilities that I could use. And here, started a new work. I saw my job as an opportunity to work with other women, also travel to provinces. My first trip was to Herat, uh, which was in the west of Afghanistan. And I also traveled to North to start working with small groups of women. And like about two years I worked. And then I always felt like I want to go and study somewhere abroad to UK or US. And here I heard about this wonderful opportunity of scholarship. So I applied for that, and uh, in the last moment, almost the last day, I heard that they accepted my application, and I went through interview process and everything else, and I got the scholarship. I went for my master's to UK for a little bit more than a year. I finished that. I came back to Afghanistan. I got job with GIZ, GTZ at that time, which is a German organization. I worked with them, and eventually, again, my Previous employer, which was a Canadian organization, they gave me a second job, this time as a country director, and I work on equitable laws for women. And I, again, I was happy because I had experience of working on Afghan constitution, and this time I was working on family law, on um, Nekonama, which is marriage contract, uh, and a number of other laws which was pertaining to women's issues. Yes, and related to these issues of working on law reform, you mentioned earlier how you were involved in the process of fighting for the right of women to be included in the new constitution of Afghanistan. Can you share a bit about your experiences with that and working to have women's voices be included in a meaningful way, not in a symbolic or tokenistic way? What was that like? For instance, in the constitution, the international community wanted to have some sort of balanced thing. The whole invasion of Afghanistan happens where women's name was used. Of course, they wanted to show that some right of women has been reinstated. So they put like quota seat for women. So they wanted a limited number, maybe 32 women or something like that. Then we said this is not enough. Second thing that we wanted was equality clause. Uh, that men and women should be equal in the law. And that was another thing. A number of other articles which promoted women on education and stuff like that. So we we were so prepared. And before the actual constitution Jirga started, women got together. And I was lucky I was working with a woman who was also feminist and who was seeing this as an opportunity. And with a number of other women who were interested to help Afghan women and bring their experiences of other Islamic countries. So we got all these learning prepared. And so when I went inside constitutional law, Jirga, used this opportunity that, that the women's right be not just like in a symbolic term, just like few women as a token, uh, be given some work or other. So we made it more substantive. We worked on substantive law of participation of women. So we got the 68 seats for women through our fight by collecting signature by working with men, because the number of women in the constitution in Jerga, there were 500 uh, total number. So women were less than 100. And of course, a lot of women were brought by men. So like maybe there were Mujahideen and warlords and others, they brought some of these women 
who could be their support on things which they wanted to promote. I remember one of the women, so she were collecting signature to make hijab compulsion in Afghanistan for women. So this was the time when we were collecting signature for more women to be in the politics. And here, this woman were collecting more signature for compulsion of the hijab. So, you know, like this was a challenge. So what I want to say that not every woman who are in political processes, you cannot count on them. So among like maybe about 100 women, we can only could have counted on five or seven women with some background on women's rights. So we work with these women, but we also work with men, especially those men who were working for minority rights. Like, for instance, Hazaras were looking to have a vice president instead of one, two, because they were looking for another seat for uh, their ethnic group. Or, for instance, the Uzbeks wanted their language to be also a national language. So we had to work with these groups and try to promote our cause. So we got more than 170 signatures, which was needed for a change. This is how, you know, like we built our alliances and that was in the constitution. But eventually uh, in 2006, regarding the peace process, we heard that Afghan government, especially the politicians, were hiddenly making their connection with Taliban. And they were trying to start discussion on peace and not on an official, but uh, in official status. So I called a number of my friends and we met in a restaurant and starting discussion on this, that things like this are going on. But we should remember if we don't be part of these processes from now, we will never be able to influence the agenda for peace in case this become uh, a formal process. But some of us argued, no, we cannot do this because Taliban were the one who did, did destroy the woman position basically in Afghanistan. If we do something, this will promote Taliban status and things like that. But then do we want fight to continue in Afghanistan? Do you think military uh, is the solution? So this is how we brought this conviction among a group of uh, seven or eight of us. And eventually we start working with other women. Because this was so difficult for a lot of women to see them part of a peace process because they were not seeing peace with Taliban as a solution. But we have to speak like, do we promote fighting, killing, thing like that? Because in fight, we are losing everyday Afghans. And um, so a lot of women were convinced. But many men in the civil society created problem for us. We lost some of our alliances and I remember one of the guy told me one day, Palwashad, that I always respected you, but you made some big mistake in your life. And one of it is you're speaking about peace. And in that time, they were not saying peace. They were saying peace with Taliban because for them, peace with Taliban meant like I'm accepting everything Taliban is promoting. Despite of we were saying like, listen, participation in peace doesn't mean that you are accepting what your enemy is saying, but trying to find uh, a middle ground where everybody survived the bloodshed finish, but also you make sure that your right is protected, um, civic rights are uh, preserved and all those things. So, you know, it took a long time to bring that conviction among women groups and all that, but still we succeeded. And so before the official process, which was started in 2010, already women had enough discussion and understanding that it's important for women 
to be part of this. So in 2010, already a group of women went to London and they were green scarf. They met with Hillary Clinton and they spoke about what women want from peace. Uh, and that's preservation of their rights and this and that. So by that time, when international community and Afghan government was ready, women were really what were their messages? What is their red lines? What they want from the peace? So this is how our struggle from small to big has grown. We helped with capacitating, bringing women in the same level, and this process still continues. But still, I think the base is now widened. It's not that eight people in the beginning. They have their own consortium. They have their own groups, this and that. So the struggle continues. And we are still got a lot of achievement as well. The current negotiation team has four women. We have in the high council women and all that. But what happened over the years? One of the strategy that men of Afghanistan use that they try to isolate women like us who were the pioneer in the process. So if you see, many of us doesn't have that uh, space in those official circles because they found us not easy to work. They, they consider us as a part of problem, despite of restarting the peace movement. Uh, so they will try to choose those women who they sort of find easy to work with, but at least we secure the spaces. And they cannot put men in those spaces instead of uh, women. Uh, and I think that is our success. Yes, the struggle continues and it's been a long process. And as you mentioned, of course, you've also seen how there are different tactics or strategies that men have used to either try to silence or minimize the contribution or the impact of Afghan women being in the lead. Uh, and related to that, could you please share a bit with us about what it's been like or some of the challenges maybe you faced being a woman leader in a situation of post-conflict or in a conservative society, also in the context of, you know, international NGOs and the UN system? I think when you are an activist, you actually be ready to overburden yourself. And at time you can get frustrated as well. Uh, so I remember when I was working for this international organization and I was the first woman to be head of an international organization in Afghanistan. Here I had substantive responsibility because I was head of mission for a Canadian organization. And, and I remember that the Canadian responsible person complained about me when I was in the constitution. And every day I was going from like early morning till late in evening, 11 o'clock, I will come back to my home because the discussion was sometime till late. And um, while I would difficulty find my way to the constitutional jerga, eventually to the last committee where all these jihadi leaders were part of it. So it was not easy. It was a big, uh, tough work inside the jerga. And here, my donor, which was uh, Canadian government in that time, and my, she was not my supervisor, but the responsible person in the embassy. She was complaining why I'm not working. You know, like there was a report uh, where I had to show certain numbers and figures in a national budget format, which Afghanistan government was working with. And I had no assistant, by the way. I was the only person in this organization. My other work was work through advisory committee and others. So. I basically had no assistance. 
But I'm so glad that my immediate boss who was sitting in Canada, she helped and she fought for me. And she said, like, Palwasha is doing an important job. She's inside the constitutional law jerga, this and that. So if I'm missing that sort of deadline, it's not because I'm ignoring my job because I'm, <laughs> I was fighting in several fronts. So, but you know, eventually, you know, like I remember on another time, like this came back that, oh, my relation with the Canadian embassy was not good in this. So, you know, at a personal level, you get those kind of challenge for your career. Your work could be not well understood what you are doing. And to strike that balance is not always easy. And my work uh, with AWN, Afghan Women Network, was all non-paid work, all volunteer work. So it was not easy to make that balance. Of course, I was trying to work with other women in AWN and I support them more on the strategic level. But still, you know, there is sacrifices at the personal life, at your career, in all those things. Sometimes I couldn't make that balance finally being so much overburdened for managing several things at one time. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's very challenging. Related to that, you mentioned earlier how, you know, there were cases or examples or times where maybe the solidarity that international women should have shown you or Afghan women was lacking or, you know, they felt threatened or it was done in a disrespectful way or all of those things. Could you please share more about your thoughts on the value of international solidarity or how women's rights activists globally can support Afghan women in a better way or be in solidarity in a way that is more equitable? I think um, we had to, um, like we didn't have pioneers. We were pioneers ourselves. So, of course, our uh, work was very tough. A lot of time, international will listen more to international. That was my experience in Afghanistan, unfortunately. So they would ask uh, another international, oh, what do you think? Palwasha is speaking about, for instance, constitution or peace and that. And they will, instead of asking me or another Afghan, they will go ask another international. Sometimes the attitude of the internationals was that they had their own definition of who is an Afghan woman, a genuine Afghan woman who is really representing her country, maybe somebody subdued, who is helped by them to do certain work. At some point, I I was so disappointed that for them, some of us were not the genuine Afghan because we were not the one who were just following internationals. Instead, we had our own vision, our own thinking and all that. I think this uh, thing is still continuing. They would instead work with this newer or younger woman who would just listen to them or follow them. Over the process, I remember like for all this work that we were doing, we were seeing like somebody who is very new into the activism and all that. The next day she was awarded for something, a big international award. So, you know, it, it created uh, sometimes disappointment that the international was trying to create their own icons. And uh, in a, a number of occasions, they even tried to award some of the women who were part of the obstacle for other women. So we again started another fight and said, listen, if you want to 
incentivize activism, at least you should make sure not to damage accountability. And the Afghan women you are supporting or awarding or whatever, if she's creating or violating certain rights of women here in Afghanistan, you're actually finishing the accountability that women should have to their own constituency. So it went even to that level sometime. But I think in the peace process, a lot of women internationally helped us or supported us, and they see it as their own cause. We also have those alliances now in U.S., in Europe, who work day and night with us. They helped us with sharing our letters, editing our work, connecting us, creating our networks. So when I'm saying there is no black and white thing, there are people who has been part of the obstacles and issues for us, but there are those who listen to us and they try to help us. So I don't have like one specific view about everybody, but I tell you like in my experience, I faced so much problems also from internationals as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Definitely. And so we've spoken a lot about your work and the experiences you've had, but coming now more to the topic of the development sector at large or generally, uh, what have been your experiences with some of the limitations or some of the ways in which you think development cooperation, international cooperation should be changed or improved? I have this uh, experience with PRSP, the poverty reduction papers. Uh, when Afghanistan was working on their own uh, national strategy for uh, reduction of poverty and uh, growth in Afghanistan. I remember I was working as an advisor on the gender mainstreaming part, and I saw how much Afghan government was struggling because in the post-conflict era in Afghanistan, which was not really post-conflict era because the conflict still continued, you know, a lot of changes enforced in that one time. It was such a struggle because the government were not really not understanding what is PRSP. Even the internationals were working with us. They, my own boss, I remember, she had no idea and she recruited me especially to work with her and uh, advised me to first learn what is, what is PRSP, what is poverty reduction, and how it works, how gender misseeming, and then work on the materials to work with the government, because that was our job. Uh, I was policy advisor at that time, and I had to work with certain ministries for them to understand what is PRSP, because for them to contribute to their own country's national plan, they first to have to understand. But there was this World Bank, and there was uh, International Monitoring Fund, and everybody was forcing Afghanistan to work on these papers, which was so difficult. And I, as a young person, also, I was feeling so much under pressure because the more I was learning and I was seeing like how, for instance, the fund which is coming, the grants, money which is coming from uh, international banks, how countries can go under debt. And here the Afghan government and the, the people who are working on it, they are not even understanding what is this, what is the process. Because so far they received only grants or support from international community. But at some other point, maybe they give us money, but then Afghanistan will be going under debt for over years. So there was all those concerns. So that is one thing. Second, like how they will understand the gender aspect, because women could be forgotten in the, in the process. And I know 
the way it was and the gender and the women part was dealt with was dealt as annexes. It was not a real mainstream thing. So I think it's important that uh, development should not be enforced when the nations are not ready for it. You should give them capacity first to understand and develop their own models. My thinking is like even development is used as a tool of putting underdeveloped country under the pressure to go with the same thinking, which has been decided in some other capitals of those countries which has resources. While the, the recipient and they have no idea where they're using this money and, and at some point they're realizing that they misuse or mismanage uh, that funding. So empowering countries is important in the process. Ownership is very much important, which is often forgotten in the development processes. Yes, very important. Thank you for sharing those suggestions. And so, you know, now this week, as we publish the episode, it's International Women's Day. And I just wanted to ask, is there anything maybe you'd like to add in terms of the context of International Women's Day or your thoughts on international solidarity with women and girls around the world? For me, it marches solidarity for women around the globe. And uh, the real solidarity is when we break all those gaps between us and we consider each other's problem as my problem, not by helping Afghan women. Don't help Afghan women. Help yourself by trying to understand us and stand with us where we want to go. And I think we have came a long way and it's important for all of us to stand together and fight the fight which is in front of us as women women everywhere in the world are still struggling. We have to create that that world where everybody's equal and to the improvement of the environment, in improvement of the human life. And that can only happen in real solidarity. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pavasha John. Thank you for all of your insights, all of your reflections. I really, really appreciate it. It's really been an honor to speak with you. Thank you, Safa John. Thank you so much. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the podcast. I invite you to join in on the conversation by going to our website, hitting the send us a voice message button and sharing some of your thoughts with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast player, rate and review past episodes, and share our conversations with your friends. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.